Welcome to Season 3, Episode 8, Chronicles of UK Salafism and Insider Perspective. This particular episode shall focus on the year 2017, and I'll begin with the 20th of January, in which the world witnessed Donald Trump becoming 45th President of the US via his inauguration, and Mike Pence joining him as the 48th Vice President. I wrote an article on the 7th of February entitled Not My President, Not My Caliph, and I'll read excerpts of that at this point. Quoting from that, The 21st century is witnessing a worrying trend where unqualified personalities who lack legitimacy are assuming significant positions of political or religious authority. It is evident that part of this success lies in the failure of their respective governments, societies or both to adequately address prevailing socio-political or socio-religious vacuums caused by inequality, disenfranchisement, poverty, etc. to name but a few. The rise of bigotry under the guise of religious conservatism or right-wing popularism remains a cause for serious concern. President Trump continues to court controversy with executive orders resulting in international condemnation and widespread protests. The following day, on the 21st of January, the world witnessed more than 2 million people protest in a women's march against Trump. 500,000 alone marched in Washington DC. And then on the 27th of February, President Trump banned travel to the US from seven mostly Muslim countries, as well as suspending admission for refugees. The first major incident of terrorism recorded on Western soil then occurred the following month on the 22nd of March. And this was the attack on Westminster Bridge and the Houses of Parliament, in which four people were killed, including a police officer, and a further 40 were injured. I wrote an article on the 27th of that month entitled Converts Are Not The Problem and I'll read an excerpt from that. In the aftermath of last week's Westminster attacks, questions are once again being asked about Muslim converts' susceptibility to violent extremism. Unlike the current flood of paltry media reports, there are actually a few practitioners and academics that have thoroughly researched British Muslim converts. In fact, my own PhD and subsequent publications have examined and discussed converts' susceptibility to extremism on the one hand and or their resistance and ability to counter it on the other. The conclusion is not as black and white as existing journalistic discourse would have us believe. It is therefore better to err on the side of caution when attempting to digest recent discussions from the usual suspects whose inherent bias permeates their analyses. I went on to highlight that the article was not a defence of Khalid Masood, the individual involved in these atrocities committed on the 22nd of March, and that we were not going to downplay the enormity of the crime that he had committed. I also highlighted um, how he had worked in Jeddah and um, I discovered he was known to a few colleagues of mine and when speaking to them about him they they came back to me with news that he was very quiet, very um, uh, isolating to, within, within himself, um, he liked to keep his own company and he was um, 
a fan of bodybuilding, self-development in that respect, and was always found in the gym. And when I spoke to others who knew him and he'd um, been on the periphery of their circles in Luton, they highlighted the same thing in that he was um, into bodybuilding. He was a bit of a loner. Um, they remember one particular occasion when he was attacked um, at traffic lights, actually. Um, it was a racial attack. And they happened to be called by him. But by the time they'd got there, he clearly was able to defend himself because he had physically disarmed and um, wounded the number of assailants that had attacked him. Um, they saw something in him from that point that they hadn't witnessed before. Um, and that was his propensity for violence, especially when defending himself. But that was isolated in that respect and they never thought anything more from, it, from him in that regard. Um, he moved away from their circles and they didn't know anything more or hear anything more from him um, on that occasion. On the 18th of April, Theresa May announced that she would seek a snap election. This was after she had repeatedly said she would not be looking to do such a thing. And we saw later on, on the 8th of June, that elections resulted in a hung parliament and they lost, uh, the Conservatives rather, lost their majority. The same special advisers who had advised her when she was Home Secretary um, were the ones who advised her to make this disastrous decision um, on the 18th of April to make this announcement. And they, unsurprisingly, were dismissed as a result. We move to the 20th of May now, and President Trump began his first international trip by visiting Saudi Arabia. And uh, he was lavished very generously by the country, and this was beamed across the world. Um, and President Trump obviously um, enjoyed um, this particular experience. I can um, give a personal um, indirect uh, involvement via one of my daughter's friends at the university she was um, studying at. They were in attendance displaying some of their art in that respect. Moving to two days later, 22nd of May, we saw another terrorist attack in the UK, this time the Manchester Arena, where a suicide bombing took place during the Ariana Grande concert, killing 22 and injuring 116. And this was horrific um, in its scale and at a concert where young children were attending. And it's important to highlight that the immediate response to that involved various communities. And the Muslim community was seen to be at the forefront on this occasion as well. Um, taxi drivers and uh, neighbours who live close, close by coming to the aid of victims, wounded, um, and those clearly in distress on that occasion. Um, news quickly emerged that Salman Abdi, who was 22 years old, British of Libyan origin, was the perpetrator to this attack and that he'd been on MI5's radar before this atrocious attack. His brother, Hashim, would later be arrested and extradited to the UK before being convicted of also conspiring in this attack. Moving to the 3rd of June now, and this was during Ramadan, we saw a terrorist, a terrorist attack on Borough Market and London Bridge by three men who drove 
their van into pedestrians before stabbing and killing seven and wounding a further 48 individuals. The attackers were shot dead on that occasion. And this was almost being played out in real time. Many of us will recall watching on television the police arriving, some of them getting into um, protective gear and move. It was a fast pace and fast moving um, incident and a very alarming one as well. And I wrote an article regarding this and and highlighted and um, expressed some very strong feelings about what happened um, because of the disgust in which this would take place by Muslims in the month of Ramadan during the evening where um, Muslims would have finished praying tarawih and they would be out eating meals with non-Muslim and Muslim colleagues um, at the same time. And so my article, which was subsequently picked up by Middle East IMWE and published as well, was entitled, This is Not for Allah, London Bridge Attack. And I wrote as follows. At the time of writing this article, authorities are trying to gather intelligence and evidence following the attack, which also extended to Borough Market, a few minutes from London Bridge on the south side of the Thames. I am a South Londoner, so this atrocity is close to home. However, while saying this, it must also be stated that every attack in Britain since 7-7 has been on home soil. Many British Muslims who unashamedly possess a sense of pride and belonging will share the sentiment of Britain being home. Extremists, whether religious, far-right or otherwise, neither like nor want this. They would rather we have no sense of belonging or affinity to our place of birth, upbringing and citizenship. End of quote. While still reeling from this attack and the Manchester bombing, we then witnessed another tragedy which shocked everyone to their core, I would say. And that was on the 14th of June, again in Ramadan, with the fire of Grenfell Tower, in which 79 individuals were killed and hundreds were left homeless, another 30 were injured. And I recall getting ready to perform the mini pilgrimage Umrah that evening. And I remember walking out of the door with a resolve that I will make dua during my, my Umrah for those who had lost their lives and looking at some footage that had been filmed from a particular Muslim mother on her phone, speaking into the phone and looking out of the window um, she was on one of the top floors and saying that she couldn't escape. And she wasn't panicking. She was very, very calm. And this was something that we got from the messages that um, were subsequent to this attack. Family members were being contacted and um, some were saying, um, we'll see you in paradise. We're going to pray for you, make dua. These heartbreaking um, messages from individuals, again, who were very, very calm um, many of them Muslim living in um, that, that block of flats. Um, others and families who came back to try and rescue family members had gone to pray their tarawih evening prayers after having the evening meal, the iftar meal. So to come back and see their home um, in flames and their loved ones trapped because some were elderly and couldn't move very quickly um, out of the building. We have accounts from one individual who... 
um, while trying to escape with others, said to his brother, come on, let's escape. But his brother said no, sat down, opened up the Mus'haf, the Qur'an, and started reciting the Qur'an, basically consigned, or resigned, should I say, to his passing. And he was very calm in, in that instance. And we ask as Muslims that Allah give um, all of these individuals, um, the Muslims um, who passed away, um, shahada, that, um, they, that they die as martyrs, inshallah. And we, we, we commemorate the non-Muslims who were part and parcel of that community living in the block of flats at the time. The efforts that were galvanised following this from the world, from the UK, sorry, not the world, the world watched in, but the, the response up and down the country with people driving down with blankets, with food, with all sorts of um, items to help the homeless and stranded, stranded because of the sheer horror of what they had witnessed was overwhelming. And it's something I think that will um, remain in our psyche for many, many years um, to come. I wrote an article on that occasion um, as did one of my colleagues, his article um, was entitled A Timely Grenfell Tower, A Timely Accident or Untimely Social Awakening. And that was on the 18th of June. My article on the 19th of that month was entitled Shades of Terror, Death by a Thousand Cuts. And I'll read some, some excerpts of that again. I refer to Theresa May's statement in which she said, terrorism, extremism and hatred take many forms. And then I went on to say, commenting, May's above comments are also correct, but how far reaching are they? She and her predecessors have ignored a significant elephant in the room that has existed for far too long now. The most demoralising type of terror is the subtle but sustained kind that affects the most disadvantaged in society, corporate terrorism. This comes under the guise of a variety of names depending on the era we live in. Today, it is referred to as austerity. In its mildest form, it results in displacing families from inner cities to more remote areas. Only five days later, on the 19th of June, we were to witness the Frinsby Park mosque attack in which a white individual, 47-year-old Darren Osborne, drove his van into Muslim worshippers, killing an elderly worshipper and injuring a further 11. And he shouted as he did this, I want to kill all Muslims. Footage came out of him being attacked and apprehended by angry Muslims. And if it hadn't been for the Imam who protected him and shielded him, it's likely there would have been another fatality by the time the police had arrived. This was another shocking attack and the local community around North London and the rest of London attended outside the mosque the following day and days thereafter to show solidarity with the Muslim community. And this year, 2017, especially Ramadan, will be an unforgettable um, time because of the sheer amount of attacks and just before that, the attack in um, uh, Manchester and then going back a few months before, the attack on Westminster Bridge. By the 19th, that same day of the Finsbury Park uh, attack, mosque attack, 
um, the UN Refugee Agency was to issue a report highlighting that a record 65.6 million people were displaced globally in 2016. Ten days later, we were to receive news that the battle for Mosul in Iraq against Daesh, ISIS, was taking place and the Iraqi forces retook the destroyed Great Mosque in um, Al-Nuri, or called Al-Nuri, and that was the symbolic site where Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi had declared the so-called caliphate. Moving to a few days later, in July, the 5th of July, again, all because of social media, many of these events and um, tragedies were witnessed live. We saw on the news that 101 people were shot and, and 15 of them killed in Chicago, Illinois. Um, that was over the 4th of July weekend, obviously. And an individual had gone into a hotel room and started shooting at um, partygoers and people celebrating below. It wasn't declared a terrorist attack, unsurprisingly, because the perpetrator was a white male. Some mentioned domestic terrorism. However, I'm uncertain as to whether that, stu that stuck. Moving to some um, events of proselytization now um, and engagement. On the 7th of August, I was in the US to attend the TAM Group conference entitled Effectively Countering Extremism, a comprehensive grassroots approach. And this took place at the Freedom, Religious Freedom Center's museum in Washington, DC. I want to read a bit about the TAM Group, of which I'm a part, to highlight the involvement of UK Salafis and Salafism and the influence there too regarding this organisation and its establishment. And what was written here by the group, why the TAM group is eminently qualified. It has produced and codified a counter-radicalisation programme developed by one of its leading qualified practitioners, Dr Abdelhak Baker. Dr. Baker has been recognised internationally as an expert and pioneer in the field of radicalisation. Dr. Baker's award-winning programmes, methodology, approach and framework has been adopted by the UK government and the United Nations as an academic, researched, tried and tested framework to counter radicalisation as well as assess radicalised individuals. Integration of Dr. Abdelhak Baker's internationally recognised organisation and framework from street strategy to reach, empower and educate teenagers. It's enabled their diverse team of experts from four different continents to implement clinical, psychological treatment, theology and grassroots community engagement. So that was the TAM group. And I remember um, being introduced to a group of professionals, young men, seasoned business individuals, all Muslim, um, by my colleague and close friend, Sheikh Tahir Wyatt, and they discussed this entity and what it would be doing in the US and um, why they wanted to use my experience, um, academic and practitioner based, to establish the organisation. And to give the listener an idea of how the TAM group was subsequently viewed, I will refer to 
a paper, an academic paper by Alexander Meligrau Hitchens, dated the 20, uh, say October 2018, the following year. And it was entitled Salafism in America, History, Evolution, Radicalization. And he subsequently delivered this paper in King's College in London. And I attended that as well to um, introduce myself and ask some questions around the paper. But I want to highlight, there's a lot here that I can refer to, but I will only refer to um, page 56 and 57 of the report in which he speaks about the new American quietists, the TAM group. And he mentions here, it is a new American quietist Salafi initiative directly inspired by the work of Abdulhat Baker and his UK-based street project. During a conference organised by the group in 2017, Baker noted that while the situation in America is not as acute as in the UK, Tam developed its model for confronting extremism on the back of his work at Street. So once again, the influence and the impact of Salafism, and while it's referring to me specifically, I want to broaden that to highlight colleagues um, SalafiManhaj.com, for example, um, the, my younger colleague, Abdelhaq um, Ashante, and individuals like him who are very, very active, Ilyas Karmani, with Salafia in the UK. And without wearing the badge in every instance, because that's what it become in the 90s, going about and engaging in areas and spaces where engagement needs to be taking place is what had become the Razandasr, if I've pronounced that correctly, or the, 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 the norm or the objective of Salafis who had proceeded along my framework, that cognitive development framework that I referred to in seasons one and two, to a more adult phase. Their activism has, has continued, the activism that we found in the second youthful phase, but the idealism and the abstract understanding has now been replaced with a cognition and, act and an actualization and experience in this field of propagation that they are now working effectively uh, cross-government, cross-grassroots, cross-corporate industries in that instance. And the TAM group in America was just mirroring aspects of that, but they already had professionals um, in place to engage um, at the similar levels, if not more senior, to what Street had been doing and Salafis generally in the UK. A few days later, on the 11th and 12th of August, the world was to witness white supremacists, their organisation called Unite the Right and neo-Nazis rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And they clashed with opponents, and this was deadly, with one individual being mown down in the car and killed. What was as outrageous as these events was Trump's statement on the 12th of that month, in which he blamed both sides for the Charlottesville violence. And he drew condemnation for his statement because he also said there were good people on both sides. And one side was clearly supremacist, racist, bigoted, and the others were anti-racism. On the 15th of August, Barack uh, Obama's tweet, in which he stated, no one is born hating another person because of the colour of his skin or background, 
became the most liked tweet in the history of Twitter at the time. And then two days later, again, another terrorist attack. This time in Las, Ramb in Las Ramblas, Barcelona, as a van rammed into crowds, killing 16 and injuring 120. The following week on the 26th of that month, half a million people took part in peace marches in Barcelona. Now, we only have to look today with the George Floyd incident, whereas whilst that's not a terrorist attack on the scale of the Barcelona attack, I'm referencing how people were galvanised to march in solidarity, to protest, to show their disgust against acts of violence, terrorist or state legislated, but nevertheless to protest in unison against these barbaric acts. Moving forward to the 13th of September now, and the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres highlighted the Rohingya refugee crisis as a catastrophe in view of 370,000 individuals fleeing to Bangladesh from Burma. 15th of September, we witnessed another terrorist att attempt in London, Parsons Green Underground Station. A bomb was um, attempted to be set off um, and it partially exploded, injuring 29 individuals. The perpetrator of this was yet another individual who was not only known to the security services, but he had uh, underwent, um, he had undertaken um, the PREVENT programme. And then we see the ego of Donald Trump continue to ascend on the 19th of September when he announced at a UN assembly that he would totally destroy North Korea if it threatened the US. He would later go on to boast about his red button being bigger than Kim Jong-un's red button. And I will highlight that is the nuclear button in this instance. A few days later, on the 26th of September, Saudi Arabia announced its overturning of a ban on women driving. And this brought a lot of um, excitement, um, not only in Saudi Arabia, around the world. Uh, Saudi Arabia being the only country at the time to not have women driving. I hasten to add in 2020, um, with women driving on the streets of Jeddah and around Saudi Arabia, we've seen um, a calm, in some instances, come to the road and the maturity um, in which the in which um, women are driving. And, and that's a refreshing uh, change to the mayhem that used to be there with male drivers and the testosterone and the anger and everything like that. It's still present, but not as apparent as it was before um, women took to the roads. On the 17th of October, the HQ of so-called Islamic State in Raqqa was declared under the full control of the US-led alliance by the Syrian Democratic Forces. I wrote an article um, on that occasion that I will refer to and highlight some of the concerns therein. 
It was entitled Zero Sum Game, the defeat of ISIS on the 19th of October. And I stated here, the recapture of the so-called Islamic State's former stronghold and capital, Raqqa, heralds a military victory for the US-backed Syrian forces. However, make no mistake, the terrorist group has already illustrated its transformative ability to cause terror within our own societies. And this is likely to continue. The group's physical demise and displacement should not be misinterpreted to mean their destruction. On the contrary, this particular defeat amounts in their eyes to a merely pyrrhic victory for the enemy. Close quote. As many have come to realise today that despite the demise of ISIS, Daesh, they are very much active on a local scale and we see that the camps in which the women and children are being held continue to pose a problem for societies in that there's an uncertainty whether they should repatriate these individuals um, and the risk of extremism uh, among some of the more hardened members of Daesh. So that's existing and we still see the occasional domestic terror attacks from them as well. Moving to November now, on the 22nd and 23rd, I attended a United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, UNODC, workshop and conference in Kazakhstan. And it was regional and that the um, adjoining countries would attend as well. And the title of this was Interaction and Partnerships in PVE, stroke CVE, the role of government, civil society and private sector. And that was in the capital, Astana. And that was the first time I'd ever travelled to the region and I prepared myself, but you never can be prepared enough, being the only black individual on the plane and being one of two black people in the city at the time was um, quite unusual for me. And I was clearly a novelty in a positive way. The, the hospitality was very warm and that was um, welcoming for me in view of how cold it actually was, which was minus 18 degrees at that particular time. On the 22nd of November, we see that Ratko Mladovic, known as the Butcher of Bosnia, was convicted of genocide and other atrocities during the Bosnian War um, and jailed for life, life at The Hague. A few days later, on the 29th of November, the Bosnian War criminal Slobodan Praljak, he committed suicide by poison in The Hague. And that was after he received a 20-year sentence. This was actually recorded. And so on the news, we managed to see um, him collapsing in court after drinking this, this toxic um, substance. Moving towards a conclusion now, on the 6th of December, Donald Trump, another feature of this particular year, officially recognised Jerusalem as, is the, as the Israeli capital. And he declared plans to relocate to the U sorry relocate the U.S. embassy there. I wrote an article on the thirteenth of December, and I want to read from that. It was called "Jerusalem Isn't the Problem: Our Lack of a Cohesive Response Is." And again, that was on the thirteenth of December, and I want to address one or two issues from this article. 
And I stated, in case we are unaware, Trump's declaration as an illegitimate, sorry, Trump's declaration is as illegitimate as the present occupation of Palestine. The orchestrated displacement of thousands of Palestinians, culminating in what is recounted by many as Al-Nakaba, the catastrophe in 1948, when the state of Israel was declared and recognized by Western governments, remains among the most controversial incidents in modern history. I went on to discuss a subheading content called Black Friday. And in that, I refer to how politicians were more attuned to their own political life than actual lives of individuals who would be suffering. And I refer to what was taking place in Libya because there was human trafficking and the slave trade that um, was being viewed and filmed and recorded by news outlets like CNN. And I'll quote here something that was very pertinent at that time. European governments are knowingly complicit in the torture and abuse of tens of thousands of refugees and migrants detained by Libyan immigration authorities in appalling conditions in Libya. The report went on to mention how European governments are actively supporting a sophisticated system of abuse and exploitation of refugees and migrants by the Libyan Coast Guard, detention authorities and smugglers in order to prevent people from crossing the Mediterranean. So they were being complicit in this, these Western governments, to prevent these migrants from taking these life-threatening journeys across the Mediterranean to their countries. And one media headline posed the question, where is the world? I asked further questions in my article, how have we allowed this to happen in 2017? Why have protests and decisive action been negligible from other governments? Have the rise of populism and far-right extremism in the West contributed to the apparent disregard for the persecution of the other? And then I called for some introspection, especially amongst the Arab and Muslim world, because I stated they are not exempt from scrutiny on this particular issue. So, without going into too much additional detail in that article, when addressing Arab and Muslim um, populations, again, in 2020, the issue of anti-black racism is at the forefront on a society, societal, global and communal scale. And instead of just focusing only on white racism, white privilege, white supremacy, there has been a shift in focus as well. And it's running a similar parallel on racism within Muslim communities. South Asian and Arab, to be more precise. I will conclude by highlighting that in total, eight articles were written um, and posted on my website in 2017, and I've referred to a number of them. The remaining ones were 13 Reasons Why, The Unacceptable Face of Suicide, that was on the 8th of May. And on the 21st of July, I wrote or posted a joint paper that Professor Basia Spalik and I had written, um, The Institutionalization of Islam. And a publication I'd contributed to that was released that year was um, authored by, or it was compiled by Dr. Sadiq Hamid, entitled Young British Muslims Between Rhetoric and Realities. So 2017 was a very, very significant year 
on a number of levels. However, we were to see the, the subsequent years, 2018 onwards, as we drew to a close of the decade, would also be filled with particular events, which I will elaborate on in the subsequent podcasts.